Al Jazeera podcast. After wading through the Rio Grande, a young girl bends down to hold her leg. She and her family have passed through a sharp web of razor wire, which cut the girl on her way out. All of them have come through Guatemala and Mexico after leaving their native Honduras. This is painful, but we had to find relief. We feared for our lives in Honduras. We come to humbly ask for asylum. They're part of a wave of people who have come north through Central America to the U.S. in recent weeks in search of a better life. This year so far, more people have passed through the dangerous Darien Gap between Colombia and Panama than ever before in a single year. And in the U.S., the government says at least 230,000 people have come since August. The city of El Paso only has so many resources, and we have come to but we look at a breaking point right now. Shelters on both sides of the southern U.S. border are now filled to the brim. Despite the cut on her leg, people like this young girl and her family who crossed over are the lucky ones. There are tens of thousands of others behind them on the other side. Today, a look at those journeys and why they're happening now. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking to Al Jazeera correspondent John Holman, who's been in Mexico since 2009. He's in the city of Tapachula, near the southern border with Guatemala. How many times have you been to Tapachula? Probably like more times than I'd care to remember. It's always like quite a, um, like a, it's necessary, but also quite a heavy trip coming here. Yeah. It's a city that's always, apologies to, to people that are proud of Tapachula, like full of sort of desperation and he- people that are heading through with some pretty, pretty terrible things that they need the world to sort of to, to hear. Um, so it's never an easy one. Has it always been like that? Has it always been this route that, you know, is open to people looking to go north? Yeah, for as long as I can remember, and actually we were chatting about that, the team this time around, and Pablo Rodriguez, the producer here, um, has been doing it for about as long as I have. And we were talking about how long we've been seeing people coming across the, the Suchiati River, which is what separates Guatemala and Mexico in these sort of ramshackle rafts. They're basically just a few bits of wood um, stuck on these big sort of inner tubes. Illegally, no one's using the border crossing, which is basically Mm. within sight on a bridge. And then starting this long, difficult, dangerous journey through Mexico. And they're starting basically in a position where they have nothing just from the get-go. They've already seen pretty horrible things. And they, they sort of come across at first with some sort of joy because they think, well, we've only got one country to go. They don't know yet that this might be one of the hardest, if not the hardest bit of their journey so far. Yeah. You said that you can see the official border crossing just in the distance. Why don't people take it? I think because they probably get turned back if they went there. A lot of people are coming without passports. A lot of people possibly wouldn't get that permission to 
to be in Mexico if they showed up in the bridge. And it's so easy just to go across on a raft. It's literally a two minute trip and you pay, I think it's um, like under, definitely under like $5. Um, I forget the amount per person to get across. So why would you make that huge queue when you can just do it that way? So John, walk me through what you have seen the past few days in Tapachula and on the banks of the Suchiate River. How many people are there? Where are they from? What are they telling you about why they're making the journey? Sure. So we're seeing a lot of people, especially from Venezuela, also Cubans, also Haitians, are probably the nationalities that most that we meant. And I guess the journey starts for them in their homelands and the reasons for why they're leaving. In terms of Venezuela, um, that country's been in trouble economically for a long, long time, no? But it seems that things have got worse um, recently, and that's pushing more people out. There's now 7 million Venezuelans that have fled from the country in recent years. But it seems like there's a fresh wave of them that are going. In terms of Haiti, that's a country where 80% of the capital's in control of gangs, according to the United Nations, and about half the population it doesn't have enough to eat, but on quite a, a big scale. So it's also a country where people are fleeing from. There's also Cubans. What they told us is that things are getting worse in their country as well, that in terms of blackouts, lack of electricity, lack of internet, sometimes lack of water and food. So we see a lot of them on the route, Nicaraguans too. So countries basically around the region that are having fresh times of troubles and they're choosing to take this road to the United States. I guess there's probably also pull factors as well. The same ones as ever, some people choosing to hand themselves in at the border, Mm -hmm. guessing that their case is going to take so long to process because of the US's backlog system that they'll be released maybe even for years in the United States while that happens. And people, you know, that information gets gets down the line by WhatsApp groups, friends, maybe relatives that have done that that are in the United States. There's also an increase in people passing through the Darien Gap, rainforests and swamps that stretch between Colombia and Panama. Over 400,000 people have already crossed through it this year, a record number. Al Jazeera's Latin America editor, Lucia Newman, has been there reporting. There is just no room. Every day receives a tsunami of migrants of 3,000 at least. So you can imagine the sanitary conditions here are absolutely appalling. The health services, absolutely insufficient. Mud everywhere, children hungry. uh, And we're hearing of more and more people who are dying along the route. John says it's not just the walk that's incredibly taxing. It's also the people that migrants find there. It's also groups that prey on migrants in there that rob, rape, kill people. People were telling us about dead bodies um, that they've been seeing up the route. We had one small boy who our producer, Amparo Rodriguez, made friends with yesterday, just describing in detail um, people that he'd seen that were shot, um, a Haitian uh, lady and child that were drowned in the river. And after that, the dad just decided he didn't want to live anymore and um, threw himself in. Things that we can't, like, verify individually each case, but we know that that's the sort of thing that's happening in the Darien Gap. Oh, my goodness. So when these people get to the riverbank of the Suchiati, they're already pretty messed up by what they've seen. 
after the horrors of the Darien Gap, I can see those listening to this story think, why wouldn't they want to seek asylum in Mexico? Mexico must seem like a refuge after all of that. But it's not. Why is that? I think that people have the separate mindset and just talking to people, not just this trip, but through the years, God, if we've suffered so much and we've got this far, why wouldn't we push on to the end destination, the United States? So a lot of people have that mindset. We actually got the chance to talk to the head of Mexico's refugee agency. And there are long, long queues of people turning up for the first appointment to get asylum in Mexico. But he said, and when we talked to people, it sort of bore it out, that um, maybe about 70% of those people have no real interest in asylum in Mexico. They just want a slip of paper, which means that they can be in Mexico as a whole, and then they can travel through the country. It was something that he said, you know, we're not a travel agency. That's not our point with people wanting asylum here. But especially in the people that we met, almost no one was, was interested in that. They see it as like, we're just one country away now. We need to get through this to our you know, our promised land, you know, the United States. People aren't, they're fleeing conscious of the fact, almost all of them, that they've got family back home and that they want to be able to provide for their families. Their line was, you know, we're not asking for anything. We're not asking for handouts. We want to work in the US. Of course, the United States, a lot of people would take a different view of that. They'd say, if you're economic migrants, then you're not eligible for asylum. So, we've got no reason to accept you within that rubric, no? But these people, they're not, they're not really aware of that. That's not a debate in their own mind, no? Their perspective is just, I'm desperate. There's not enough for my family back home. I'm heading north and hopefully I get there and I can work and that's good for everyone. Tell me about Henesis, a woman you met from Venezuela on the banks of the Suchiati River. Yeah, Henesis was really... We met them in, in Guatemala, in the nearest town, and um, she and her group were just really upbeat. She's got three children, and um, they were getting on the raft from Guatemala, and um, she was, you know, clapping and smiling, and we, we talked on the other side of the river, and she's just like, just one country more, you know? She's feeling pretty joyful about it. And... Then there's a camp on the on the banks of the River Suchati on the Mexican side. And that's people that are waiting for government buses to take them a little bit up the route to sort of decompress, depressurize the Mexican government puts it at the border. But some of them have been waiting there for more than a week because there's not enough buses. So they, Hennessy's and her group decided, no, we're not going to wait. We're going to walk to Tapachula, the nearest city, which is a sort of migrant hub, and we'll get processed there. That's about 30 kilometers away. So they started um, walking and we walked with them. I, I guess they're used to it by now. That's what Hennessy's told me. Those long distances seem pretty hard for them, and pretty hard for the children. They're quite a unified group. And it's interesting that for me, they said that's what you need when you go up the route because other migrants as well can steal from you. You never know who you're going to, like any situation, who you're going to encounter on the way. So we don't let other people in. We travel together. We've been through the Darien Gap. We know each other and we know that we're going to help each other. We kept in touch with them. That night, they managed to get a small bus to take them to Tapachula and uh, they were sleeping in the bus station. So... I uh, just, 
I, I guess it's another sign of, you know, you start the morning full of joy, you've gone into Mexico. Mm -hmm. By the night, I think you've realized how hard it's going to be, you know. Tapachula is in an emergency situation. That's what the head of the refugee agency told us. So they're going to be now involved in long, long queues to try and get a piece of paper that says that they can remain in and then maybe travel through Mexico. Mm. So tough, tough for them from now on in. Some of the reasons why those queues are so long after the break. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So, John, you were last on the take in May, and that was just as this very controversial U.S. border policy known as Title 42 was ending. It had allowed the U.S. to turn away people on the spot at the U.S.-Mexico border due to COVID-19. And back then, the conventional wisdom in the U.S. was that the policy ending would make it easier to get across the border. Fast forward to today. Is this more like what people expected to see back then? Because these are record numbers that we didn't see after the end of that policy. Yeah, that's what some think tanks are saying. And I think we even perhaps talked about that when Title 42 ended, that we were surprised at the low number of people. But we were wondering if there might be a wait and see, that people waited to see exactly how strict the new rules were before they then attempted it. So that's one way of explaining this, that it's sort of a delayed influx of people heading north now that they know what the lie of the land is and exactly how tough it is in the post-Title 42 world. I think, as always, there's this huge mishmash of different reasons, no? The push and pull factors we were talking about. There's also a lot of people smugglers, no, that are involved in this. And it depends also on what they're telling people. It almost seems sometimes to me like the stock market. It doesn't really matter what the reality is. Perception is everything, no? And that affects um, how the numbers go, go, go up and down. John, we have seen, as we said, a record number of people crossing the Darien Gap between Colombia and Panama this year. In the U.S., Eagle Pass, that's a city in Texas, declared a state of emergency because of the amount of people coming in. You had the head of Mexico's refugee agency telling you he has never seen this many come in before. What do you think is going to happen in the next few weeks and months based on the people that you've been talking to? What the head of the refugee agency told me is like, we've been seeing 6,000 people every day crossing the border into Mexico. But he did also say that he felt like in the last couple of days, maybe that the number had started to go down slightly. So if that continues, obviously, then that will be sort of the end of this, this period of influx. But on the Darien Gap, I've just been watching it all year and seeing it sort of go up and up. You know, it's only been going in one uh, direction. And whether that continues, I guess, will depend not just on the pull factors of the United States, but also on what happens in these countries. It's something the Mexican president, who's also been controversial over migration, has, you know, stuck to 
um, since he's been in, in, in power. And he said, we've got to also deal with the root causes of this. And I guess that's what he's talking about in terms of if things in countries don't get better, it doesn't matter what the rules are in the North, they're at least still going to start coming because they feel on their end that they've got very little choice. So it depends what happens on the region as well. John, thank you so much for taking time out of your reporting to talk to us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks to you. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra and Sonia Bagat, with Amy Walters, Chloe K. Lee, David Engers, Veronisa Campana, Khaled Subsan, Miranda Lynn, Sariyat Khalili, Zaina Badr, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>